Sex Addiction Edition of the Betrayal Trauma SOS Podcast. Just thinking about my addictions, well, you've got your own. It's so hard to tame this condition, just let it go. of puzzles and pieces they slowly conjure can't think about lifeless decisions leave me alone I'll start to look into your soul tell me the things that you Welcome to the Betrayal Trauma SOS Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny Brockbank, and in an effort to better understand and to gain greater empathy regarding my husband, who has struggled with sex addiction for over three decades, I have been studying what sex addiction is. I love my husband dearly and greatly appreciate the gift of having a voice, which makes it possible for many others to find healing as well. His sacrifice has not gone unnoticed. So today I share the culmination of some of the best resources about what sex addiction is. Maybe you're wondering if you or a loved one has a sex addiction. This episode is geared towards those who struggle with addiction and so that loved ones can have a better understanding as well. Sending so much love and empathy to anyone who is in either camp. I'd like to welcome new listeners from Kenya, Thailand, and the Philippines. I'm really in awe when I see new countries pop up and really appreciate the privilege of welcoming people from around the globe. It sure makes the world seem cozier to me. Also, please note that this isn't therapy and I'm not a therapist. In no way should this episode be used to diagnose a sex addiction, as that would be the job of a trained professional. I highly recommend qualified professional help in your situation. I have loved searching out and learning from such amazing resources for this week's episode. All sources plus some additional ones can be found at the bottom of the episode description, which can be found at BetrayalTraumaSOS.com, and this is episode 18. That way you can listen without taking notes about sources, should you want to delve deeper into a resource that I talk about today. I've lost count of the sources for today, which includes some various programs that treat sex addiction. I won't be going over those, so if you'd like uh, more information on those, you can go to, again, BetrayalTraumaSOS.com, episode 18, and scroll to the bottom. If you're a subscriber to the Betrayal Trauma SOS podcast, first, I want to thank you. I'm honored to participate in any healing and appreciate your presence here. I'm sure that I will go into greater detail about what has been going on in my life while I've been taking a pause from podcasting, but because things are current and unresolved, that will have to wait for a later date, but I'm truly grateful for your continued presence here. Due to the nature of current events, I can't consistently commit. However, I will post episodes as I have them ready. I really hope that you'll choose to subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes. 
Today, I'd like to take a whole-body approach to the subject of sex addiction. Let's discuss how sex addiction affects people physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I'll even share my Horcrux sex addiction theory. I'd like to start with this question. Why is it important to be informed about sex addiction? The phrase, knowledge is power, is applicable here. For instance, when we learn about how porn and other such behaviors can rewire the brain, the opposite is true as well, and that is that it's possible to create new neural pathways to heal this damage. Also, if your loved one struggles with sex addiction, learning more about it helps it to not feel so personal and also empowers us to make better decisions with things like boundaries. So is sex addiction legit? This is a question. If you've asked it, you're, you're normal. You're completely normal. I had no idea that porn was an addiction when I got married, and I really needed more information before I really understood that. Sexual addictions can include pornography, masturbation, seeking non-relational sex, strip clubs, affairs, chat rooms, and so much more. Because porn is a part of most sex addictions, I'll talk about that specifically coming up, but also throughout the program. There are lots of different levels of porn use, from very occasional to an unhealthy coping mechanism to full-blown addiction. There is much debate about this subject among professionals. However, the evidence is overwhelming and compelling. Dr. Donald L. Hilton says, quote, Is pornography or sexual addiction, can that be a real addiction like cocaine and methamphetamine? The answer science is telling us is, yes, it can. Can it change the brain in similar ways? Can it cause these frontal areas, this break of the brain, to actually get smaller? Actually, it can. Close quote. From the American Society of Addiction and Medicine, quote, People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. Close quote. If you're wondering if there's some sort of litmus test for addiction, only a professional can diagnose that. However, I find the following helpful. This is from Dr. Kevin Skinner's new book, Treating Sexual Addiction, A Compassionate Approach to Recovery. He says, quote, Historically, when we observe any addictive behavior, the following five characteristics manifest themselves. One, Inability to consistently abstain. 2. Impairment in behavioral control. 3. Craving or increased hunger for drugs or rewarding experiences. 4. Diminished recognition of significant problems with one's behavior and interpersonal relationships. And 5. A dysfunctional emotional response. Close quote. In 12 steps, we learn that addiction is a disease. On the Therapy Brothers podcast, Brandon Patrick and Tyler Patrick talk about this in one of their episodes as they are asked the question, is addiction a disease or a choice? And Brandon says, quote, it's a disease, but choosing recovery is absolutely possible as well. Close quote. Let's dive into physical repercussions of sex addiction. Let's start with the brain. I know that there are some in this audience who will be thinking, come on, can things like porn really cause changes in the brain? Is that even possible? 
And the answer is yes. It can change the shape of the brain. It can change how chemicals are used in the brain. It can change the neural pathways. And it can even shrink various parts of the brain. Fight the New Drugs says this, quote, Porn happens to be fantastic at forming new, long-lasting pathways in the brain. In fact, porn is such a ferocious competitor that hardly any other activity can compete with it, including actual sex with a real partner. That's right. Porn can actually overpower the brain's natural ability to have real sex. Why? As Dr. Norman Deutsch, a researcher at Columbia University, explains, Porn creates the perfect conditions and triggers the release of the right chemicals to make lasting changes in the brain. Repeated consumption of porn causes the brain to literally rewire itself. It triggers the brain to pump out chemicals and form new nerve pathways, leading to profound and lasting changes in the brain. Close quote. Can porn be a drug then? It certainly can stimulate the brain to create drugs that are harmful when misused, just like any other drug. The difference between porn and other drugs is that you don't have to go to the drugstore or to your dealer to get them. They can be produced on demand with or without the help of most any device. Neurosurgeon Donald Hilton challenges the idea that drugs are only things that you can purchase. Quote, why is it that some consider adrenaline and dopamine to be drugs if drug companies produce them, yet they will not acknowledge these same chemicals to be drugs if pornography stimulates the brain to produce them? Close quote. Dr. Hilton shares some studies that show various parts of the brain that shrink with different addictions. For methamphetamine and cocaine, three parts of the brain showed atrophy or shrinkage. For obesity, two parts of the brain showed shrinkage. And for sex, and specifically in this study was used pedophilia, five parts of the brain showed shrinkage. Isn't it crazy that sex addiction literally changes the brain and has the potential to affect more of the brain than illicit drugs? Let's talk about the Coolidge effect. First, before I do, I want to talk to you about a wonderful series called Brain Heart World by Fight the New Drug. This series really does a wonderful job of explaining what happens in the brain in the first video um, with connections and love in the second video and relationships. And the last video is how porn affects the world at large. For the first two videos, I did watch this with my children, and they really enjoyed them. It was fun. It was tastefully done. I really appreciated how it was done, and I highly recommend it. Along with all of the other sources for this episode, I have links to Brain Heart World as well at the bottom of the episode description. Again, episode 18. But in Brain Heart World, the first video, Brain, they discuss the Coolidge effect. They don't actually call it that. I think for user-friendliness, which is really nice. Um, but that's what it is. In the first video about how porn affects the brain, in this video, they talk about a study that was done with butterflies. And they took some butterflies and they painted a cardboard um, version of a butterfly. 
that was bigger and it was bolder. And what happened was the male butterflies actually tried to mate with the cardboard. And of course, the cardboard version wasn't even real. Believe it or not, this translates for humans as well. So how does the Coolidge effect look when someone has a sex addiction? Basically, people are looking for more. It escalates in some way. So it can look different for many people. For some, there might be a strong desire for a different partner. So affairs might be used, or they might seek for non-relational sex with prostitutes, etc. Some might start looking for porn that crosses their moral boundaries, such as child pornography. For some, the addiction is fed with an increase of frequency of porn use and or masturbation, which might look like many hours a day of acting out. Tragically for some, it might also turn to sexual abuse of another. What the Coolidge Effect teaches us about sex addiction is that whatever the behavior, more or different, is eventually needed to achieve the same level of satisfaction. Sex addiction can also cause increases in depression and anxiety. It can also lead to other serious mental health conditions, such as bipolar disorder. Sometimes mental health conditions can decline in such a way that suicide is even a possibility or a factor. Specific to men, porn can also create erectile dysfunction. From Fight the New Drug, quote, The rise in porn-induced erectile dysfunction is something to be alarmed about. Frequently watching porn can lead to erections which can increasingly only be induced by hardcore pornography. That's not healthy. Close quote. I do find it fascinating to view uh, brain scans of people who are addicted to pornography. You can literally see the physical damage. Let's move on to how porn affects connection. I'm sure that you have seen many people, including celebrities, wearing shirts that say, porn kills love. The fight the new drug slogan is catchy for a reason. Any addiction is, at its heart, a numbing behavior. Addiction numbs emotions, and by so doing, it damages connection with the user and with others. The following is a quote from a Brandon Patrick Instagram post. Quote, Addiction is a deathless death. It numbs the pain and the joy. Close quote. To me, there are three types of relationships that pornography affects. Because it numbs emotions, love is the casualty. And because it damages the love of self, the love and connection with others, and the love and connection with God, it is particularly destructive. I hope you'll stick around for the heaven connection in a little bit. But let's start with the love of self. How is that damaged? At times, I have heard loved ones who struggle with sex addiction say crushing and self-degrading things regarding their worth. Thinking about such times in my life brings strong grief. I want to add that I feel great empathy for anyone who is in such a place. The following is a quote from Clay Olson, who is the co-founder and president of Fight the New Drug. Clay says, quote, Having a healthy perspective of yourself and a healthy amount of self-esteem and confidence is very important in maintaining a healthy lifestyle overall. The fantasy of porn tends to take away from that and give consumers the idea that they're not good enough. 
exactly as you are. We fight against that. And we fight to say that you are worth loving. You are good enough. Close quote. I definitely agree with Clay and appreciate his words. When we think badly about ourselves, it's easy to turn to unhealthy self-medication techniques such as sex addiction. Of course, this perpetuates the cycle, which can actually apply to behaviors other than sex addiction. And it would look something like this. Self-loathing, self-soothing with unhealthy behaviors, distress over what we just did, self-loathing, repeat. Sound familiar? While this episode is not about fixing sex addiction, I want to add that swimming in shame will not help fix this problem. I find that for my own errors, I too have turned to shame and can relate with that, but lately I've been trying to lean into self-compassion. The following is how it might look for someone who just acted out, we'll say with porn and masturbation. Wow, I just acted out. It was certainly a mistake to do that. I am not a bad person. What was causing me distress? Maybe job stresses or family issues, money things. Wow, those were certainly painful circumstances that I was facing. What can I do to self-soothe in a healthy way next time? What do I need to do to repair this? Can you see the difference in this type of dialogue rather than shaming or calling yourself a name or, or something like that? There's some kind of power in realizing that down deep, we are good, we are worthy of love, that everybody makes mistakes and we want to do better. But it doesn't mean that because we messed up, we are not worthy of such things. Next is connection with others. This leads to my Horcrux theory. Just remember that I'm not a professional and there are possibly holes in this theory. I'm sharing because it has helped me personally to view sex addiction in this way. Um, but if you'll remember in Harry Potter, Voldemort would, in his case, kill someone and a piece of his soul would be attached to an object. Well, something similar can happen to any of us when we sin. This is easier to see, perhaps, in the case of pornography and masturbation. So I'll use it as an example. Masturbating to an image or video can seal it in the brain of the user, attaching the sexual experience to the image. This makes it so that the user can access previously viewed images in their brain without an image or video. This allows the user to attach to an image or a fantasy without connecting to an actual person. They have attached parts of their hearts and minds to something that is not real and that cannot provide meaningful connection. The more this is done, the more fragmented the soul is, and the user is less able to connect with an actual person in meaningful ways. I will say that unlike Voldemort, <laughs> I believe that there is help available to repair this fragmentation. One of the greatest tragedies of porn is that people are bonding with a screen instead of other people. This is discussed in the book Love You, Hate the Porn by Mark Chamberlain and Jeff Strewer when they say pornography's, quote, ultimate price. When he's going to it, he's not going to her 
close quote. And the same can be said of women and could be rewarded. When she's going to it, she's not going to him. Here's the painful truth. Those who are deep in addiction wear a mask. A great tragedy is that loved ones of the addicted often don't know the real person. The addicted are oftentimes afraid of letting people see their real self, afraid of rejection, afraid that they won't be loved for who they really are. In my experience, the opposite is actually the truth. I think sometimes that someone who struggles with an addiction can identify with their addiction and make it who they are. But their addicted self is not who they really are. I want the addicted to hear something. We want to know you. The real you. You are so much more than your addiction. Will you come out of hiding and let us see the real, lovable you? The tragedy is that when you hide the addiction, you also stifle the amazing person that you are. In general, as partners, we can work to heal from the pain, but we can't work with your mask. It's not possible to connect with you while you wear it. Will you please take off your mask and let us see the real you? Sometimes your authentic self is hidden under years of addiction, but you are worth discovering. You are so much more than your addiction. The real you is wanted, needed, and immensely valuable. Please unmask your authentic self. This may take therapy, support groups, and more, but you are worth the effort. If you've consistently listened to the Betrayal Trauma SOS podcast, first of all, thank you. But that also likely means that you have heard me talk about Rat Park. And I'm sorry to share it again, but I assume that I'll have new listeners this this episode. So I love the TED Talk from Johan Hari that discusses this. He talks about a series of experiments done with rats and addiction. The first experiment was a single rat in a cage who was given the choice of drinking water or water that was laced with methamphetamine or cocaine. These rats almost always preferred the drug-laced water and killed themselves rather quickly. In the 70s, however, Dr. Bruce Alexander noticed that the rat had nothing else to do, so he built Rat Park. Rat Park had lots of cheese, fun tunnels, colored balls, and other rats. They also had the choice of plain water or the drug-laced water. The fascinating thing is that, quote, in Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They almost never use it. None of them use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose, close quote. Rat Park is true to my experience with my husband as well, and healthy, authentic connection does seem to be key for recovery. The hard thing is that for someone with an addiction to really connect with someone, they have to be brave and take off their mask. Learning to take off the mask of addiction so that others can experience their authentic self can be so scary, but it is critical for healing for both the individual and their damaged relationships. Sex addiction can damage relationships in other ways as well. Trust is certainly a casualty, and significant and sustained effort is needed to rebuild trust, pretty much universally. 
Additionally, I have experienced firsthand the devastation that can be done to the esteem of the spouse of someone with a sex addiction. Nearly 70% of those who receive a disclosure or discovery regarding their partner's sexual acting out suffer PTSD-type symptoms, which makes what they're experiencing a mental health crisis. I've read other studies that show a higher percentage as well. What this means is that your spouse likely needs their own recovery. It is normal for the betrayed spouse to have low feelings of self-worth, to blame themselves for the addiction, and to try to fix themselves. Please know that if your spouse seems highly elevated or maybe depressed or other things that are kind of out of the norm, they could be experiencing betrayal trauma. In such instances, both parties need individual help from qualified professionals. The amazing thing is that I've witnessed beautiful, even stunning relationships emerge when both parties do the work of recovery. Such marriages have walked through fire to emerge more beautiful and strong. They have their eyes wide open and face challenges in amazing ways. The connection that can be developed is something to stand back and admire. That is what I am working towards and hoping for in regards to my own marriage. Next, sex addiction is also a spiritual disease. I would love to have this discussion with people from many religions, but it's just me talking today, so the spiritual side of this is heavily influenced by my own beliefs as a Christian, and I am specifically a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's okay if you have different beliefs. Take what you like and leave the rest. I hope that you'll stick around to the end because I will be discussing the role of evil spirits in all of this. Satan seeks to destroy the agency of man, and addiction is a powerful way to do that. Let's look at King David for an example here. I certainly can't diagnose King David as a sex addict, and I'm not saying that he was or wasn't. However, he certainly struggled with sexual misbehavior, and I think that his story is a great example of how such behaviors can progress and also about how they can distance us from God. I also appreciate that his story showcases that sexual issues can be a problem for anyone of any stature, as it's so easy to think that such things will never happen to us. King David was beloved of the people of Israel and of God. David was chosen by God to lead Israel. As a youth, David was anointed by Samuel the prophet to be the king of Israel. I love reading about how loyal he was, how he loved God, and about his stunning generosity to people like King Saul. As most listening will remember, though, King David did fall, and there are many parallels to today. The following, which I will summarize and add some of my own thoughts to, is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It started at a time when David wasn't where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be fighting alongside his men in war, but instead stayed home. Today, being where someone isn't supposed to be might look like inappropriate websites, chat rooms, or even physical places like strip clubs or other such places of temptation. David wasn't supposed to be watching the beautiful and married Bathsheba bathing. In a day where pictures and videos weren't accessible, this might be similar to today's pornography for David. He took that farther and inquired about who she was and learned that she was married. 
even knowing this information, David invited Bathsheba to be with him. We're starting to see the progression. We're starting to see how David is escalating in behavior, much like those who struggle with sex addiction, and how his conscience is becoming more and more numb. Hang on, it becomes more tragic. David had an affair with the married Bathsheba, and she became pregnant. Instead of facing this in David's typical, honorable way, he worked in extreme ways to hide his behavior. Bathsheba's husband Uriah had been at war, where David was supposed to be, and David knew that Uriah would soon find out that the child that Bathsheba was carrying was not his. So David worked to make it possible for Uriah to go home from war so that he could have sex with Bathsheba and would think that the baby was his. Uriah, however, was striving for that honor which David had forgotten. While Uriah's men were sleeping in tents in open fields, Uriah refused the comforts of his own home. He would not sleep in his comfortable bed, nor would he eat the mess of meat which David had provided, nor would he make love to Bathsheba. He slept instead at the door of the king's house. The progression intensifies. David then did the unthinkable. He wrote a letter to a commander named Joab, and this is what it said, quote, Set ye Uriah in the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die, Close quote. David's sin progressed further as he instructed Uriah to deliver the letter himself to Joab. Uriah unknowingly hand-delivered his own death decree, and he did die. David paid a high price for what he did. In Psalms 51, David says this in part, and I want to say before I read it that I relate with this with David. I too have felt um, just really not good for sins that I have committed. He says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Maybe you can relate with David. I know that I certainly have felt similar things. Let's move on to the role of evil spirits in sex addiction. Before going on, I want to say that I take full responsibility for my interpretation and presentation here, so take what you like again and leave the rest. When Jesus was on the earth, there were many instances of him casting out evil spirits. Too often when we are discussing things that ail us, we leave out the important information of an invisible enemy who seeks to destroy our souls. Let's back up a bit and figure out who these spirits are. When the enemy is invisible, we have to be able to recognize what we're up against in other ways. As I read the next couple of scripture verses from Revelations, just know that the dragon spoken of is who we typically refer to as Lucifer or Satan, and some call him error or the devil. Basically, the dragon is the devil. So we're going to start with the war in heaven. Revelations 12.7 says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And then on to verse 9. And the dragon, 
And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. What we learn from this is that Satan and his followers were cast down from heaven. Where were they cast down to? Here on this very earth. We have amongst us an enemy that is calibrated, orchestrated, and organized. And by the way, they are largely invisible. Their intent is our very destruction. Their desire is your and my soul. Their weapons are things like confusion, emotional anguish, shame, and so much more. Should you think that you are immune to attacks of satanic origin, I invite you to remember that Satan came to Jesus himself tempting him. While I believe that some who are, for instance, disabled might be exempt from such things, the great majority of us are not. We are, after all, not better than Jesus Christ. I mention this because it's easy to feel shame that devils affect us at times and in various ways. Hopefully, we can take comfort that we are treated in similar ways as the Savior. I'd like to briefly discuss a couple of ways that they do affect us. For instance, they can whisper in our ears, be kind of near us. I don't know how that works exactly. Things like temptations that if followed lead to distancing ourselves from God. They can whisper lies that might be instrumental in making us question our worth, which, by the way, is immeasurable. They bring with them feelings of confusion, judgment, and shame. In the New Testament, we also learn about evil spirits who actually enter bodies. Such spirits are happy to wreak havoc internally. They who were cast out of heaven before they could obtain a physical body covet yours and mine. Upon entering a body, they can cause much chaos inside of an individual. In the New Testament, it speaks of people who are mentally ill and who are tortured by such spirits from the inside out. While that might seem a little more obvious, I do believe that sometimes the effects are much, much more subtle. People don't always recognize that they are being tortured in such ways, and yet things like addiction might stay rooted in part because of an invisible enemy who is wreaking havoc inside of a person. How do we combat an invisible enemy? What can we do if and when we fall prey to such influences? The good news is there are many who have successfully rid themselves of such influences. I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe that his power and even the power of his name is the way to handle such things. I find the following instructions very helpful. This is from Doctrine and Covenants, section 50, 31 through 33. Wherefore, It shall come to pass that if you behold a spirit manifested that you cannot understand, and you receive not that spirit, you shall ask of the Father in the name of Jesus, and if he give not unto you that spirit, then you may know that it is not of God. And if it shall be given unto you, power over that spirit, and you shall proclaim against that spirit with a loud voice that it is not of God not with railing accusation, that ye be not overcome, neither with boasting nor rejoicing, lest you be seized therewith. In my religion, things like priesthood blessings have proven helpful with such matters. Also, some spirits are very 
rooted. Matthew 17 tells of such a story. A man had a son who would throw himself into the fire and sometimes then into the water. The scripture calls him lunatic. So this man brought his precious son to Jesus' apostles to cast the evil spirit out of his son. His apostles couldn't do it. So his son was brought to Jesus, who cast out the evil spirit. When his apostles asked Jesus why they couldn't cast out the spirit, this was his reply. And Jesus said unto them, Because of your unbelief, for verily I say unto you, if ye have faith as a grain of mustard seed, ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. Howbeit, this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. So it looks like the basic remedy for removing evil spirits includes invoking the name of Jesus, faith, and sometimes fasting and prayer. Sometimes when I feel like an evil spirit is near, I will command them away from me and my loved ones in the name of Jesus Christ, and I then ask my Heavenly Father to send good spirits to protect me and my loved ones. I recently had a conversation with someone who who deepened my thoughts on this, and they said that if you cast away um, the feelings, if you name them, so if you say, say you're feeling fear, and if you cast away fear in the name of Jesus Christ, that that helps. And then to be specific, too, with what angels you're asking to come and minister to you. Maybe angels of comfort, maybe angels of protection, maybe angels um, who have your best interest at heart. Perhaps pay attention to the atmosphere of the home and when it changes. If, for instance, there is a pattern of contention when someone walks in the door, you might consider the possibility of a spiritual attack. The wonderful hope is this, though. If the root of what someone is experiencing is a spiritual attack of sorts, this root can be removed. When it is removed, we can function at a greater level, thoughts can be more clear, the process of healing can be faster, and if a spirit was instrumental in rooting an addiction, the root can be alleviated. I also want to add that if a spirit is removed from a person, it is important that a person fill their mind with good. The Savior spoke of a spirit that was removed from a person and after a time decided to come back to inhabit them, this time taking with them seven spirits that were more wicked than himself, the state of the man being worse in the end. Basically, what the person does after a spirit has been removed matters, as they need to work to protect their minds and bodies from future invasions. I believe that ignoring the spiritual aspect of addiction can prove spiritually destructive and for some, even spiritually fatal. Like King David said, this is my plea for myself. See if it resonates with you too. Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a right spirit within me. I am truly honored to have you join me today. Due to personal circumstances beyond my control, I don't know when my next episode will be released. However, I have a wonderful interview recorded with betrayal trauma coach Pam Blizzard about future tripping. I've been practicing what I learned from Pam in this interview and am really excited to share her wisdom with you. I hope that you'll subscribe so that you don't miss it. 
While this is the first episode I've released in quite a while, Betrayal Trauma SOS is still very active on Instagram and also Facebook. I also invite you to visit BetrayalTraumaSOS.com for more content and resources. Let's heal together.